do not win lawsuits. State governments lose. The only time we allegedly win a lawsuit, it is in reality the federal government winning out over the sovereign rights of a state. Once again, the American Indians are the pawn. Listen to us talk, we're a world-renowned Download our podcast Where you will consume all the doom and gloom From 99 and Max Many sound design always inspires To your heart's desire Hey man, you know there's nothing that we lack Past your ears into your mind Through the heart, all the facts on your podcasting app comes a basic white man with a rusty microphone in his red right hand. And Fucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members Nathan Surst, Nettie Hucker One, Pete M, Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G, Ryan F, Sultan, Specker. Terry C., The Younger PDX Squatch, William N., W. Jeremy D., and The Memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 1. These Are Not Your Children. We're interrupting our socialism series this week to talk about an issue you won't find a lot of coverage on, but it's part of our mission. It's officially June, which means we're going to be flooded with a series of critical Supreme Court decisions. But there's one decision that will impact 574 distinct and sovereign nations. In the brief and brutal history of the United States, tens of thousands of Native children were stolen from their parents and tribal communities and forced into labor camps and residential schools, stripped of their humanity, identity, and often their lives. Those who survived and returned found themselves devoid of any culture or heritage, any connection to their ancestry and families. Some started over. Others left tribal territories and assimilated into white culture. None escaped the generational trauma. In 1978, Congress attempted to rectify this practice with the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act, referred to commonly as ICWA or ICWA. Among the provisions are strict guidelines for adopting Native children. There are accounts of residential schools operating into the 1990s by Christian groups, but the formal practice ostensibly ended in 1978 with ICWA. Today, the act is being challenged by combined court cases jointly referred to as Holland v. Brackeen. The case was argued in front of the court in November of last year and involves two Native children and their white adoptive family in Texas. This is a tricky case and we'll get into the particulars, but there's one thing to bear in mind at the beginning, and that's the children. 
Cases wind up in front of the Supreme Court because they're inherently complicated. And while some feel more narrow in scope than others, the overarching reason the highest court decides to hear a case is because there are wide-ranging ramifications. Three of the most important aspects of a case are, one, determining whether those involved have standing, meaning they can demonstrate an authentic connection to the case, two, whether prior decisions or precedents are uniquely challenged by the circumstances of the case, and three, the constitutionality of the respective arguments. Now, lower courts in the Brakeen case have been divided on the constitutionality of the complaint as well as standing, so the Supreme Court has a number of issues to take into account. And that's a normal path for any case to find itself all the way at the top. In terms of Brakeen, let's start with the family side of things, the real-life situation involving children. The Brakeens are a successful family with two biological children of their own living in Texas. In what they saw as God's favor to service, they decided to become foster parents. That's when Zach, a native child, and that's not his first name, entered their lives. While fostering Zach, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or BIA, discovered that relatives in Navajo territory were willing to serve as adoptive parents. And that's where the trouble began. Zach's biological parents struggled with addiction, as is common in native country. It's why Zach wound up in the system to begin with. And after being fostered by the Brakeens, matters were further complicated when Zach's mother had another child, this time a baby girl. The Brakeens moved to foster Zach's half-sister in the interest of keeping family together as their case to fully adopt Zach went through the courts. Now, the lower courts in Texas found that in attempting to remove Zach from the Brakeens' home, the BIA was violating the equal protection standards under the Constitution and that the agency wasn't acting in the, quote, best interest of the child, thereby challenging both the federal law and the manner in which it's applied at the state level. Through multiple challenges, the adoption has held thus far, and the Brakeens are fighting in this case to retain that right and apply it to Zach's sister. Of course, given the length of time this has all gone on, Zach was placed in 2016 when he was only 10 months old, it certainly adds an emotional element to the situation as this is the only family that Zach and his sister have ostensibly known. However, there was a twist in the Texas Family Court ruling that gave the Brakeens primary custody with the stipulation that he visit his extended Navajo family for specified periods during the summer. So the Navajo family, desirous of adopting him, aren't an unknown quantity. And technically, given the way ICWA was written, he should have been sent to live with them years ago. And now, all of this is up in the air as the Brakeens and Zach's blood relatives wait anxiously for the SCOTUS decision. As complex as this individual situation seems, it's even dicier when you scratch below the surface and truly understand what's at stake and the real motives of those who are funding the Brakeens case. UNFTR is also sponsored by over-caffeinated members, Alfie and Flash, Awesome A, Asshole, Bree X, Cindy S, David MJ, Eric Wagner 101, Goat, GWookie of Ohio, Joa, Cringy, Marco F, Maria from PR, Matthew, Michelle H, and Nathan E. Chapter 2. Whose best interests are we talking about?
The Brickins aren't bad people. They, like many other foster and adoptive parents, became attached to Zach and his sister and sought legal counsel to determine if there was any way to keep them. They'd fallen in love. But federal law is extremely clear that in every adoption case involving a native child, all efforts must be exhausted to place the child with native families. There are essentially three avenues to consider in the native adoption process as set forth by ICWA. And one disclaimer that I want to make, since many of you have heard our prior episodes on native issues, the term Indian is predominantly used to refer to laws, statutes, services, and people. So I'll be using it when it's contextually appropriate, but mostly using the term native to mean Indian when I'm editorializing. Anyway, the avenues are termed preference under ICWA, which stipulates, quote, a preference shall be given in the absence of good cause to the contrary to a placement with one, a member of the child's extended family, two, other members of the Indian's child's tribe, or three, other Indian families, end quote. The policy is so clear that it continues saying, quote, notwithstanding state law to the contrary, whenever a final decree of adoption of an Indian child has been vacated or set aside or the adoptive parents voluntarily consent to the termination of their parental rights to the child, a biological parent or prior Indian custodian may petition for return of custody and the court shall grant such petition unless there is a showing in a proceeding subject to the provisions of Section 1912 of this title that such return of custody is not in the best interests of the child, end quote. So there are a lot of hurdles to go through to keep a child away from any native family interventions when adoptions are concerned. So it's important to understand both the intent here and the specificity of these preferences. Family and extended family first, members of their tribe second, and if neither is possible, then another native family may pursue adoption regardless of geography or whether the child is even considered a part of the petitioning tribe. In all ways, the law was designed to keep native children with native families. And it even clarifies that if at any point Irrespective of state laws to the contrary, a biological parent is allowed to petition for the return of the child even if that child has been adopted. But there's one hazy part of the equation that leaves the door open, and that's the concept of, quote, the best interest of the child. So what we've seen in the multiple challenges through the courts regarding the Brakeen case is multifaceted. Zach's biological parents were drug users. Therefore, he was placed in foster care in his best interest. Having formed a bond with the Brekkins and their other children, and the fact that they were successful, loving, and stable, they made the argument that they were clearly in Zach's best interest. But their claim goes even further than challenging the best interest concept by claiming that placing Native children with Native families, whether related or not, violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution based on racial grounds. So, without knowing much more than this, I think most Americans would concede that Zach and his sister are better left with their adopted family. And it likely seems that sending children to live with extended family, and especially to non-family members, just because they belong to federally recognized tribes, is a racially motivated decision rather than a practical one. Of course, there's a lot more to it. First off, let's begin by introducing the bad actor representing the unspoken part of this challenge. From the New York Times, quote, In 2015, the Goldwater Institute, a conservative think tank in Arizona with donors who have ties to the Koch brothers, 
put the law on its roster of targets. Goldwater argued in about a dozen cases that the act violated the equal protection rights of Indian children because it was more difficult to permanently remove them from abusive homes, end quote. Curious, right? What's a conservative think tank's interest in the adoption policies of native children in the United States? Interestingly, this isn't Goldwater's first go-around. In fact, they've been funding challenges to ICWA for more than a decade. This is just the furthest that they've come. A 2017 article in The Nation provides clues, if not the outright answer, to this puzzling question. Quote, Goldwater's stated goal is to have the U.S. Supreme Court strike down ICWA as unconstitutional. The implications go far beyond child welfare. Many tribal members fear that if Goldwater is successful, it could undermine the legal scaffolding of Native American self-determination, end quote. And there it is. The child welfare aspect of the challenge is more than likely just subterfuge for the greater goal to which the Brakines are a matter of convenience. And that goal is to attack the very underpinning of tribal sovereignty and Congress's exclusive and constitutional right to manage all nation-to-nation -nation affairs with sovereign tribal governments. And why would that matter? Well, as the Nation article continues, quote, a ruling in Goldwater's favor, according to other legal experts, could undermine the authority of tribal courts, shutter tribal casinos, and open up reservations to privatization, something that could benefit oil and gas developers like the Koch brothers, end quote. The original funding for Goldwater came from the Koch brother foundations and other libertarian-minded families like the DeVos family. Outside of attacking tribal sovereignty, Goldwater typically focuses on the usual slew of libertarian policies, like school choice and vouchers to attack the public school system, loosening environmental standards for corporations, even promoting electronic cigarette sales to minors, and of course, dismantling unions. Apart from these large and coordinated efforts among conservative and libertarian think tanks, which we've covered exhaustively in the past, attacking native sovereignty was more of a side hustle. But with the new conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court, they've hit the big time and are close to reaching a dangerous milestone. The reason the Nation article can make such a leap from child welfare to a more insidious claim of large-scale land grabs is that the Koch family fortune itself has roots in stealing natural resources from tribal lands. There's also the matter of gaming, which in many states remains a carve-out for native tribes under an interpretation of commerce rules. The biggest encroachment on sovereignty, where commerce is concerned, is the constitutional protection of trade relations that places commercial transactions, referred to as intercourse between sovereign nations, under the strict purview of Congress. If the Burkine case exposes an opening in this relationship and calls congressional oversight into question, it opens a Pandora's box of other states' rights claims to determine their own relationship with sovereign native nations. As attorneys at the Circling Eagle law firm conclude, quote, ultimately, if the Supreme Court makes the decision to overturn ICWA, states would regain the control to remove native children from their families. This would put the overall existence and longevity of tribes at risk. It's vital to continue to support ICWA and to take action against the possible overturning of this protection for indigenous communities, end quote. Chapter 3. Justice and Justices Are Not the Same
So let's unpack the legal arguments of the case, beginning with the biggest issue that always faces the SCOTUS, and that's the issue of constitutionality. On this point, it brings us back to the concept of sovereignty. It's the central idea that must be understood when contemplating legal and political matters on and off tribal land. Now, the idea is fairly simple, but the mitigating factors and circumstances are anything but. In the simplest of terms, each of the 574 federally recognized tribal territories are, in most cases, viewed as sovereign and independent nations. Straightforward enough. Where things get complicated is that the United States government maintains several obligations to these tribal entities that are different from so-called normal nation-to-nation -nation relationships with other countries. It's something referred to as sui generis, a Latin phrase that technically means in a class by itself. But at the root of the concept, any negotiations between the United States and tribal nations are under the authority of Congress because it relates to congressional use of foreign powers. When it comes to commercial interests, these powers are referred to as plenary powers. Under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, plenary powers determine interstate and intergovernmental rules of commerce and no state is allowed to enter into separate agreements without the express consent of Congress. So in an amicus brief filed on behalf of the tribes in the Brakeen case, the ACLU argues, quote, the Indian Child Welfare Act is constitutional and urges the Supreme Court to uphold the centuries-long legal precedent upholding tribal sovereignty, including tribes' rights and ability to preserve their unique cultural identities, raise their own children, and govern themselves, end quote. Here's Justice Jackson pressing the attorney for the plaintiff on the concept of plenary power and constitutional provision that grants jurisdiction exclusively to Congress. You say we need to look at it in a more narrow lens, I guess consistent with the sort of general understanding that Congress has limited authority. What I'm a little bit confused about and concerned about is whether it's really correct that we have to look at it so narrowly, that is the scope of Congress's authority as it concerns Indian affairs. When we have said over and over again that Congress has plenary and exclusive authority and when the history of our Constitution indicates that the constitutional design was about ensuring, in a way, that the federal government had the authority over the tribal relations, tribal uh, uh, affairs, and not the states. It seemed to me that baked in to the Constitution's structure related to this, outside of just the Indian Commerce uh, Clause provision, is the notion that the federal government, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the states, was going to be taking charge of this, especially in light of the Articles of the Confederation uh, uh, precedent. So if that's the case, then what, what would you say about the thought that rather than, you know, searching for, you know, what additional limits there are on Congress's authority, we start with the premise that with respect to Indian affairs, Congress has plenary authority and therefore, as we've said in all of these prior cases, as long as it involves Indian affairs, um, and Congress is making policy judgments, they have a constitutional basis for doing so. 
The attorney essentially responds by affirming the nation-to-nation -nation relationship, but contends that it relates more to land and commerce, and that Native children are neither. And therefore, the tribes themselves have no, quote, proprietary interests in matters of adoption. But where human interactions are concerned outside of land and commerce and treaties, the attorneys representing tribal interests had other precedents to stand on, such as the 1974 ruling in Morton v. Moncari that examined whether preference to natives in hiring at the BIA was discriminatory based upon race. In this instance, the court ruled that as a federal agency that oversees the relationship between sovereign entities, it too is sui generis. From the ruling, quote, the preference, as applied, is granted to Indians not as a discrete racial group, but rather as members of quasi-sovereign tribal entities whose lives and activities are governed by the BIA in a unique fashion, end quote. So, Mankari and other cases essentially affirm the notion that each tribal territory is indeed sovereign and that their special nature, as opposed to, let's say, France or Japan, carries special consideration. Now, Justice Gorsuch, considered the most knowledgeable in tribal affairs and a staunch advocate for sovereign rights, invoked Mankari directly and firmly in his questioning intimating that the plenary powers of Congress were absolute in all matters related to Native people on and off tribal land. Justices Sotomayor and Kagan followed similar lines of questioning, and even Justice Barrett seemed reluctant to concede any ground on the plaintiff's state's rights arguments. But the attorneys, clearly prepared for this, made greater headway with Kavanaugh, Thomas, Alito, and Roberts with the best interests of the child argument and contending that the particular carve-out for adoption on what they called, quote, racial grounds was a bigger constitutional issue with respect to the Equal Protection Clause. So I know this is getting really complicated, but it all comes down to this idea of sovereignty versus unique identities and unique obligations, whether or not these are racially motivated relationships or they are relationships akin to sovereign nations specifically, just like we would have with France or Japan or any other country that you can imagine, right? So where the conservative justices, with the exception of Gorsuch, all got hung up was in the third preference for adoption, not parents or extended family, but tribal rights writ large. As it stands, ICWA basically states that a native child is better served living with other native people, even if they're of no blood relation, than any non-native family. Now, more than likely, that's where the decision is going to hinge, as you can hear in Chief Justice Roberts' questioning. I have, as I mentioned to Mr. McGill, difficulty understanding how the placement priorities work. Um, so maybe I'll try an example. Let's say there's a six-month-old uh, baby that had been born to an Indian couple, and the Indian couple, for whatever reason, is no longer uh, no longer there. Um, and there are also no extended family members in, in the tribe. A non-Indian couple comes forward and says, we would like to adopt uh, the six-month-old old baby. And they check all the boxes of their, you know, best interest of the child. In other words, in normal circumstances, this would be a perfect placement uh, for the child. But non-family members of the tribe uh, say that, no, they think it would be better for the child, uh, child to be raised with the tribe on the reservation. Uh, does, does that priority trump the other best interests finding? 
But several briefs filed in support of the tribes refute the best interests claim, noting that Native children who remain in tribal areas have led to more positive psychological outcomes. Indian Country Today, a Native publication, writes, quote, At its core, the law is simple. Chairman of the Oneida Nation, Tahasi Hill, said in a press conference last month, he noted that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Medical Association are among the many groups that filed amicus briefs with the Supreme Court recommending the upholding of ICWA and, quote, warning of the harm that the loss of ICWA would bring. He called the law wildly successful. Tribes, child welfare experts, and medical experts, those who know the law and the needs of the children best, overwhelmingly oppose the efforts to overturn ICWA, end quote. So the best interests argument supports the critical distinction made by tribal attorneys and repeated by the liberal justices on the court that in all ways dealing with Native people, they must be viewed as political decisions and not racial. That's incredibly important. Think of it this way. An Ethiopian child or a Japanese, Armenian, pick a country, any country, has willing and adoptive parents from the United States and their home country, able to care for them capable of providing a home, education, love, support, whatever, everything is exactly the same on both sides of the equation. Would that child thrive more in their native country, with their native culture, their heritage, their understandings, all the distinctions that come with being part of a unique culture, or somewhere else like the United States? Now, most people that aren't evangelical Christians, apparently, would likely understand that the obvious answer is their native country. That's what the third preference refers to. But this line of reasoning appeared to be a bridge too far well into oral arguments with justices like Brett Kavanaugh, who continued to struggle with the classifications of political versus racial. And then uh, you've, you suggested that everything's been operating smoothly. You know, we leave well enough alone. But I just want you to speak to the concern on the other side, which is you, know, you come in as an adoptive couple you want to adopt a child. The state court otherwise would say the best interest of the child would be to go with you. And then you're told, no, you're the wrong race. Bring it home, Max. The Indian Country Today article considers several possible outcomes of this important trial. ICWA could end up being held up in its entirety, maintaining the sovereign rights of tribes in their current form. It can break it apart and create new standards for when children are placed into foster care. Most terrifyingly, it could strike down ICWA in its entirety, which would place state authorities at the center of the adoption process just as it was prior to 1978, when the vast majority of Native children were placed in foster care off tribal land with white parents even when parents and extended families were an option. This last option would open the door to several other challenges such as criminal law enforcement, search and seizure, and even some commercial challenges because presumably the Equal Protection Clause would also come under scrutiny along with the notion of congressional plenary power. No matter which avenue, observers appear prepared for a long and confusing decision with differing opinions that create more questions than answers. Now, as I've said before, I'm not in the prediction business, but my hunch is that the likelihood that ICWA survives in its entirety is the most unlikely outcome. I would be appalled 
but not shocked if a slim majority struck it down entirely. But my guess is that it will land somewhere in the middle with specific language related to adoption proceedings that reverts to a situation much like we had prior to 1978, but with provisions that attempt to safeguard precedents that uphold the notion of sovereignty where commerce and law enforcement are concerned. Just from the line of questioning, my guess is that Gorsuch will align with the liberal justices in upholding the entirety of ICWA, or at least that will be how they want to go. But it seems as though Alito, Thomas, and Kavanaugh are prepared to light a match to sovereignty altogether. Now, ironically, I think Barrett is kind of a wild card here. She appears to get the idea of plenary powers, but struggles with the specific nature of adoption, which was certainly tracked given her experience as an adoptive parent and an evangelical. In my mind, she's the biggest reason that this might wind up somewhere in the middle. But if we assume the two extremes, ICWA struck down or entirely preserved, I think it's fair to say that Gorsuch, Jackson, Sotomayor, and Kagan will side with preserving it, and Kavanaugh, Alito, Thomas, and Barrett will light the match. And that leaves Roberts. So that's why I highlighted the clip of him pressing the attorneys for the tribes on the idea of best interests when it comes to situations that do not involve family or extended family. And that makes me very, very nervous. But here's what I find so disheartening and so sickening, no matter the outcome. While the Burkines seem like loving people, they're evangelical Christians. Part of the legacy of fundamentalist ideology that views Christian primacy in the matters of family the same legacy that governed the administration of residential schools that stole tens of thousands of native children under the absolution of Christ and murdered thousands in the process. The unholy alliance of this zealotry with forces like the Goldwater think tank make this all the more disgusting. If ICWA is struck down or even just dismantled, it will be yet another evil libertarian Christian fundamentalist victory through the courts another in a long line of victories in their relentless campaign to turn back the hands of progress and suppress the rights of native people or any non-white Christian rich people for that matter. So that's the skinny on this case, pending a decision shortly. And for right now, here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Welcome into post-show musings, everybody. It's rather late at night. Running up against a deadline once again. Took me a while to kind of get my arms around some of the particulars of this case. I, something I've been looking at for a long time, but it's something that had uh, the, the real particulars of it had eluded me. And I finally set the time aside to listen fully to the oral arguments, which is about like three and a half hours. And I wound up doing it twice because, again, I'm not a lawyer, right? It's not my first language here. And it's really important to grasp kind of the intricacies of this. And there's a lot that I actually left on the table, you know, on the cutting room floor, so to speak when it comes to like the intricacies of decision-making process, like the idea of standing, for example. So that was discussed for a little bit. In fact, it was Justice Thomas at the very beginning of it that talked a little bit about standing. It's amazing actually to hear him ask any questions because he typically doesn't do that. But 
he asked a couple of questions about standing. Uh, there was some procedural stuff that went back and forth in the very beginning about uh, they were trying to tease out basically where the attorneys were going to put their best arguments forward. And that's why I zeroed in on kind of what the attorneys said were their strongest arguments, either to dismantle ICWA or to preserve it in its entirety. It's just so fucking frustrating to think that, you know, we have to we have to pin our hopes again that this court won't act in an evil way. I mean, we already know that conservative think tanks and their billionaire funders have access to these courts. Right. We know that from some of the obviously a lot of the the stuff that came out about Justice Thomas, but even in some of the cozy relationships that Alito had before uh, even the most recent revelations with Thomas. So we know that these people can be gotten to and that they're you know, this is an activist court and they want this in front of them. They want this case specifically in front of them. And that is so goddamn frustrating because I just don't have a good feeling about it. And it's one of those things that either way, when it hits the news, whatever the decision is going to be, news outlets will parse it. It'll be a one day, maybe two day story if we're lucky. But the idea that what's at stake is going back to those pre-1978 levels where, so here's the deal. The, The states would then theoretically be fully back in control of the adoption process and decision-making process without having to consider anything related to ICWA. There are 10 states that have basically mimicked and mirrored the ICWA standards because they foresaw this problem and they knew that these challenges were moving through the courts. So they did the right thing and adopted those standards. But in the other 40 states, it's anybody's guess as to how these rules will be administered. But we don't really actually have to guess too hard at it because all we have to look at is the natural inclination of agencies filled with white people making decisions that they deem to be in the best interests of children without any sort of consideration for net, for, for congressional regulations that govern their decision-making process. So what are they going to do? They're going to look at situations like this and be like, even if you have family members, you live in a very poor area and uh, because that's what reservation territories are predominantly in this country. And they're going to use their bias and say, gee, is this child going to have a better chance in a white home off reservation of, you know, parents that are together and both have jobs and, and there's no other issues and they have other children in the house or sending them back to a reservation where they will probably grow up with some degree of extreme poverty. So you're leaving that that I, that concept in 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 the hands of people that are never never going to see their way clear to maintaining the identities of native children with tribal affiliations. And you know, you might look at this and say, yeah, but you know, that best interest of the child. I mean, we really do want things to to be good for the kids. Why wouldn't we want to give them opportunities? because it robs them of their heritage, of their identity. It assimilates them into the culture. And that's the fucking point of all of this. That is the concentration camp style approach that the Nazis were adopting by looking at what we did in this country. That is a fact. They looked at the success of us beating out the culture of, of Native Americans by stealing children putting them into these residential homes, 
putting them into poverty-stricken areas with no natural resources, stripping of them of their fundamental rights and agency to make any sort of decisions for themselves. The Nazis looked at that and saw that this was an incredibly successful model and they fucking replicated it. That this is just a continuation of the same strain of ideological practice, which is if there's a situation where we can put them with a white family or a native family, we will make the determination based upon our own ethnocentric standards of what is better for somebody rather than the cultural standards that are better and more psychologically beneficial as proven out by multiple studies from multiple organizations over multiple decades that those children belong in their own cultures. And this is a political decision. It's not a racial decision. These are separate sovereign entities. Once you get the idea of sovereignty and independence into your mind, you can't unlearn that. All you have to do is substitute any tribal nation. So Oneida, Navajo, Cherokee, Sioux, Seminole, doesn't matter. Just substitute France whenever you're talking about it and then think about the absurdity of us reaching into France to determine what will happen with their adoption policies. There's no fucking difference between the two. And that's what I think, I think the court might ignore. That's the fear here. And we'll be shouting at the rain and screaming about it, even if they uphold ICWA but dismantle certain parts of it just related to adoption. It furthers this whole ideological concept of stripping native people of their heritage, removing them from their language, their culture, their history, people who who look like them, feel the way they do, experience life the, the way that they do, assimilates them into our culture, and it just further degrades any chance of them holding on to their heritage. And it's late and I'm super tired and I'm super frustrated and uh, I, I'm just, I have, I'm trying to keep positive vibes about all this, but um, you know, you know that this is my, this is my thing. And um, man, it's just a struggle. It's just a struggle to keep up for it and to advocate for it. So let's have some positive thoughts. Maybe Gorsuch will convince the justices behind closed doors. We have so many other victories. Just leave this one alone. I'm begging them. Just leave it alone. As always, Unfucking the Republic is uh, produced by the great and powerful 99. The audio engineering and all the magic stuff and all the, you know, you know I've forgotten the outro and I don't know why I can't wrap my head around it. I got to write it down. So Manny, why don't you just plug in with the rest of it? You know, you know the voodoo that we're supposed to do. Like I said, it's late and I'm tired. But I love you, unfuckers, and I'll catch you in the next one. No problem, Max. I totally understand. Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by the sound design maestro Manny Faces. That's me. All the original music is produced and uh, whipped into a frenzy by our man Tom McGovern. You can follow him at TomMcGovern.com. Shoutouts to the Wolves of Glendale as well. And of course, everything about the show, including all past episodes, essays, information, merchandise, uh, wonderful coffee that you could buy, uh, donations, emails, forms that might now work, uh, are on our website at unftr.com. From all of us here to all of you, peace and love. We'll be back soon. <laughs>